us, too. Where's your pa? Putting up the horse, Ma. Sure wish you could have seen us in town. Look at you. What happened to you? Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Raslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we watched the third, is it the third film? Yes. In the 1946 nominees, The Yearling, directed by Clarence Brown and starring Gregory Peck in his first foray as the good, wholesome dad. (laughs) You had me watch this movie under false pretenses because you said it was good. And I will argue that it is good, even if it is not the kind of movie I like. And so I guess we're going to have a big argument. (laughs) Yeah, because I don't think anybody gives a good performance in here. I think Gregory Peck gives the closest thing to a good performance, and I think he's horribly miscast. He's way too young. He's way too young. Mm -hmm. I'll totally agree with that. I should never hear Gregory Peck say the word varmints, and I hear it about a hundred (laughs) times. He is good at being a 50s suburban dad, but as this pioneering wildsman dad, he's just horribly miscast. And I think he is giving the best performance because I think Jane Wyman, who plays the mom, is not doing very good. And I think the kid is straight up just bad. And you're watching this kid a lot. And it ain't his fault. You need the best child actor of their generation to just barely pull off this role because he's in so much of this movie. There are multiple scenes where you can tell he has been instructed to do a specific gesture, like in a commedia del art sort of way to show a specific emotion. And he just does the gesture before the cue. Because the director has gone like, start giggling, begin giggling. This is a laughter scene. Do the giggle now. Wow, I could not disagree with you more on the direction of Claude Jarman, who is the actor who plays Jody. I think that he's actually really well directed because I don't think he's a great actor. I mean, most kids are not. Let's be real. Right. There are a handful of great child actors and the fact that we don't know him... I think says a lot. Yeah. The scenes where he has to do the things that are hard for child actors, I think he does really well. Like, losing his shit and crying feels earned. Now, a lot of the things where he has to be excited, I guess, yeah, I would agree with you, feel stagey. Yes. I think he was clearly cast entirely on his ability to lose his shit and cry. And I will say, he can lose his shit and cry. But how much help do you really need in a scene where a little boy has to shoot a deer he has become extremely attached to? That is maybe not where I actually need his performance stat points to be high, because just fucking having the kid shoot the deer is going to make that scene effective. Oh, see, I think that that's one of the harder ones, because how do you sell that? The kid knows that he's not actually shooting a deer. God, I hope they did not actually have the kid shoot a deer. (laughs) They do have the mom actually slap a deer, which is weird. Yeah, that's true. Uh, It's interesting because at the end of this film, there's a card that says that it was made with the cooperation of the Humane Society, which is the first time that we've ever seen anything like that in a film that has a lot of animals in it. And I think back to like Traitor Horn, for example, right, which definitely was not made in cooperation with animal rights groups. <laughs> or like, 
an actor's union since somebody literally died on that film. (laughs) I was initially really surprised by that card. And then thinking back, there were a couple of scenes where I thought, oh, now we watched some movies in the 30s where they wouldn't have just put some red paint on a dog. They would have murdered a dog. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) There are some scenes where I can see how the Humane Society was involved simply because they were trying to not do the cruelest possible thing to these animals, but they still get away with some wild shit. So when I thought that this film is good, and I still will stand behind that, I think it is beautifully directed and it is the first film that we have watched in Technicolor where I felt like it being in Technicolor brought something to it that would not have been there had it been shot in black and white. I mean, first of all, the movie is filmed in a national park in Florida and the particular qualities of Technicolor films specifically as opposed to other color films or video technologies lends itself really, really well to conveying heat. So you feel like the golden, yellowish, oppressive sweatiness of Florida. Yeah. Even while all of the actors somehow are not sweaty. (laughs) (laughs) Except for the bad question mark guys. Yeah. Really, it's just a family of Florida men. (laughs) And they're the main people you interact with. They're the antagonists, if not the bad guys. Right. And the weird thing about this movie structurally is that they keep being built up to be the antagonist. And then another random tragedy just happens that has nothing to do with them. And they're like, I'll go get the doctor. Like... (laughs) Yeah, they're a weird family, and I think that they're supposed to be weird, and I think that it is actually well set up that they're just kind of batshit, which worked for me, that they one minute are like, you're dead to us, and the next minute they're like, oh, well, you actually are at risk of dying? Well, we're not just going to let you die. (laughs) Yeah. I also think it's really well edited because no one scene feels like it drags on forever, and every scene seems like it has a point when you get to the end of like okay this is why oh oh god no this is why this was established i i mean that is true if and only if the point is the boy going wow this makes me even more attached to the deer that's definitely marked for death there's like 30 scenes that have no reason to be in this movie and have nothing to do with anything except to stack the tragedy deck for when he has to shoot the deer. Okay, I'm going to have to have you name them because I think there's 30 scenes in the whole movie. (laughs) Um, the wedding scene. The scene where he goes over to see his best friend and his best friend is just dead. The scene where the mom just declares apropos of nothing that all deers are the same and she hates them. (laughs) There could do to be, I don't know, four less iterations of scenes where the deer does something that pisses off the mom. Because there are approximately 12 of them. (laughs) So I actually have an argument for every scene that you named as to how it weaves into this story. But maybe we should go through the plot? Sure. There's a little boy in Florida... His mom can't express affection because he's their fourth kid and the first three all died. His dad is Gregory Peck, horribly miscast as a folksy wisdom guy. He is, for the first half of the film, learning life lessons, going on a bear hunt with his dad, and watching his dad trade a bad dog for a good gun, 
and throwing soap at a girl for no reason? Or is it a potato? I forget what he throws at her. It's a string of just sort of incidents until the dad gets bitten by a snake out of nowhere, has to kill a deer. Okay, first to... of all, no one gets bitten by a rattlesnake out of nowhere in Florida. I mean, it's Florida. There's <laughs> no setup for it whatsoever. It is a scene where you are doing something completely different. A snake suddenly jumps into frame and he goes, duh, a snake, and then goes, God, bit me. That is the amount of setup it is given. And that's fine. Snakes bite people. I get that. I'm not claiming it's unrealistic. I'm claiming it happens out of nowhere in the plot. Anyway, then he kills a deer because the deer's organs save him from the poison for reasons that are probably true, but very hazily explained. And that deer has a kid, and the human child becomes very attached to this deer whose mother died so that his dad could live, and, like, adopts the deer. And then the back half of the movie is scenes of him learning life lessons exclusively that make him more attached to the deer, while the deer kind of fucks up the family farm, until the mom accidentally, question mark, shoots this deer, but doesn't kill it, and he has to go over and shoot it to put it out of its misery. Then he runs away from home, which goes badly for him on a physical level, but goes great for him on an emotional level, because when he returns home, his mom has finally figured out that she should express affection, because, oh God, what if she lost him? And end of film. Okay, there were a lot of details that were left out of that. None of them matter. I totally disagree. <laughs> all of those scenes suck. I hate all of the scenes in town. I hate all the scenes with the other family. It's just boring. It's just a waste of time until he has to shoot the deer. So some details you left out that I think actually matter. <laughs> the family and apparently all of the families in this area are a sort of homesteader that I didn't realize this was a thing in Florida, but apparently it was. That if you could go into what is essentially the Everglades and carve out arable land that you got to claim it. So everybody lives basically a subsistence farming life, which is a critical element to understanding why the mom is so upset about the deer. They're basically broke. They have enough food to eat, but not a lot of money. And life is really fucking hard. They go on a bear hunt because a bear kills one of their cows? Yeah, it kills a calf. So they have to go out and try to kill this bear. The dad has three dogs, one of which is his best dog, Julie, and then a newer dog who is apparently worthless, <laughs> and then another hunting dog. They go out to hunt the bear. Gregory Peck's gun backfires when he tries to shoot the bear. One of the dogs runs away. One of the dogs is fine, and then his best dog, Julie, is injured. Also, I learned from this that I definitely would not have been into bear baiting in the Renaissance, because that was a really hard scene to watch. <laughs> yeah, it was tough and kind of left a bad taste in my mouth and doesn't relate to anything. But it does! <laughs> it is required to have another scene that doesn't relate to anything. Okay, I'm still gonna argue that it does. <laughs> So he needs a new gun because the gun that he has sucks and they don't really have money for him to buy a gun. So he takes the worthless dog who's no good at hunting to the family of Florida men 
and tells them the truth that the dog is worthless, that it's a terrible hunter. But for some reason, one of the younger adult members of the Florida men family is like, you're a liar, Gregory Peck. That dog has not one scratch on him and he was at a bear fight. So I know he's actually a good dog. And Gregory Peck is like, yeah, he ran away. That's why he didn't get hurt. And the guy's like, nah, he's a great dog. I'll trade you my gun for that dog and you don't have a say in it, which is really what he wanted. But Gregory Peck also knew that they were batshit Florida men and that this was how this was going to go. <laughs> They have a young son who is Jody's age, who is apparently Jody's only friend other than Oliver, who is a younger adult man who he knows who went off to join the merchant seamen. <laughs> anyway, the younger kid is somehow disabled. Like he jumped off of something trying to fly is the impression that you get. <laughs> yeah. That's not the impression that you get. That's explicitly what he says. He knows when you're old enough, you can fly because angels can fly. So he jumped off a fucking building and broke his legs. That has nothing to do with why he dies, by the way. He just dies out of nowhere later. Yeah, I mean, I will give you that that is not supported in any way, but it is foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> In that he's an idiot who jumps off? Okay, whatever. No, that his one close friend dies. First of all, this is a kid's film. I think it is really important to emphasize that this is a children's film based on a children's book, and you learn children's lessons in it. Sure. Oliver, the guy who is a family friend, has come back. He is involved with some girl. They're engaged, but one of the Florida men insists that actually she's his girl. There's a big fight. The point of this, and I will agree that Oliver is not well-developed, but the reason that Oliver is in any way important to this story is that he gets married, moves to Boston, and when Jody runs away, his plan is to go upriver and somehow meet up with Oliver, which is the kind of thing that a kid thinks is possible. <laughs> sure. Why is that important in any way to the story instead of him just going to New York or trying to go to Atlanta? Like, what does that add to the him running away from home sequence? Well, he has to have a place where he's going where he knows somebody, right? Because otherwise he's not going to end up on the river. He's just going to run away. He does just run away. Because it's a child's plan, that's still what happened. Right, but he pulls himself into a canoe because he's like, I'm going to go up river. And that's how he ends up being saved by that people on the river. <laughs> but they live on an island. Like, he's gonna be on water if he runs away from home. I guess so, sure. But why end up in the canoe? Why not just stay in the area or go by foot? It, whatever. This is arguing over three minutes of the film. And we still have four more life lessons for this kid to learn that I left out. Anyway, the point of the doe doing all of these bad things, and it is specific bad things, the doe keeps destroying and then eating their crops so the dad wants to plant tobacco so they have a cash crop that they can sell so that the mom can have a well in their front yard instead of going wherever it is that she goes to get fresh water and then haul it back home the deer tramples the tobacco and then the deer eats their entire corn crop when it first starts springing up the dad has been injured, and now Jody has to replant the entire corn crop and build a really high fence with the idea that the fawn 
well, now a yearling, will not be able to jump the fence. Of course, the deer is big enough now that the deer jumps over the fence and eats their whole crop, and him running away for three days and not having any food teaches him the lesson of how hard starvation is and why it was important to get rid of the deer who was going to end up making them starve. Yeah, I wish then more of the film was spent on that. The running away from home sequence, like I say, takes three minutes total. Three minutes for him to run away from home, go, God, I'm starving so much, get in a boat, get rescued by a captain, and return home. And for Gregory Peck to go, oh, thank God we were so worried about you. And you're like, you were? That was three minutes ago. I will say that doesn't feel like three days, and it's only because the script says you've been gone for three days that you know this. Right. But at that point, it does become clear that this is the lesson that you are going to learn. I think it's interesting that this is a book that was published in 1938 because it's real depression era lesson of, hey, kid, you need to learn that it's rough to start. (laughs) Yeah. I guess to me, the thing that is weird about it is it doesn't seem like it's actually teaching lessons. It seems like it's a tragedy engine that then backfills lessons for the emotional resonance of this kid having to kill a deer. All of the lessons feel super tacked on. Like, to me, the natural form of this movie is to be cut up into 15-minute chunks and played on 1950s television with Walt Disney going, Ah, nature! Like, around the front and back of it. And in fact, Walt Disney makes this movie about 45 times so he can do that. The thing that bothers me about this movie is that each of the segments is disconnected enough that you don't really need the rest of the movie for any of them. Yes, he learns lessons in each of them, but the lessons are all like, it's bad to starve. Don't steal from people. Beating people to death is troublesome. (laughs) Nobody actually gets beaten to death, though. No, but there's like the big fight in town, and the point of the big fight in town by itself is basically, maybe don't start big fights in town. Uh, Yeah, okay. It introduces us to the guy that has a wedding later, but in and of itself, the lesson is just, I don't know, fights. Who can say? Crime. Boy, I don't know. As I think a series of 15-minute vignettes with a cute kid and a cute deer and a lot of good nature photography, like, whatever, it's fine. But as an Academy Award-nominated film, it's interminable. Like, I just, I just can't with this thing. Yeah, I guess I just was in a very generous mood. I didn't feel like it was that long, and I also thought it was really beautiful. Just to look at it, not necessarily with the lessons it teaches, which are very basic human lessons. I will kind of go to the mat on the kid being just okay at best, but the way I am being unfair to this movie is the nature photography is very, very good, and I don't really care. (laughs) But it is extremely objectively good in a way that no movie we have watched so far has done, but from a screen test of time perspective, Terrence Malick's entire filmography exists, so, like, I don't really care that they managed to get some deer on Technicolor film. Yeah, but that, I mean, that's unfair. Terrence Malick has a very particular style. This is not even comparable, except for the fact that they are both nature photography. (laughs) Right. What I'm saying is that this film has done an incredible achievement for 1946, 
in getting very good nature photography. One, that's not necessarily my thing. And two, there are plenty of other movies that have made impressive technical leaps in the history of film where we've gone, yeah, but like we live in the year of our Lord 2020, so we don't really care. The the impressive technical leap here is, I think, the thing that really carries this movie. And it's also not really a screen test of time thing. The fact that this lets us do like boys adventure films throughout the 50s and 60s isn't really a thing we ordinarily give like three or four points to, you know? See, but I think it's beautiful from a standalone perspective. I mean, it's not just that it's an impressive technical leap. It's that it just looks fucking good. There's a lot of really beautiful shots in this film, and I think that that's, I think that is worth, to me, that is worth points. Whether or not it has ever been replicated is not really the point. It's that it looks fucking good. I don't think it looks that impressive. Like, I think there is plenty of examples of movies from even the 50s that do what this movie does with sort of nature photography better. Like, it's pretty, but there are shots in the movie Homeward Bound that are pretty the way this movie is pretty. To be fair, I've never seen Homeward Bound. The other thing that I guess I have to be perfectly upfront about is that this is not the kind of movie that I like or choose to watch under other circumstances. So I haven't seen a lot of those Yeah, I think probably part of it is, you know, I had Daddy Tom the Cowboy Lawyer trying to show me Frontierland shit for my entire childhood. (laughs) And like, whatever, I want to read. I was a weird, boring kid that didn't like that stuff. But also as a result, I have watched a lot of this shit. This is a pretty good example of it. I really do not want to talk down the nature photography in this too much because I really do think you're right. It is pretty, but I just think there's actually a lot of stuff in this genre and it becomes kind of par for the course. This becomes a sort of cheap moneymaker film genre in the 50s and 60s. You grab a cute kid, you find some redwoods, you set up a Technicolor camera, boom, you're done. For a long time in cinema history. And this is a good example of it. There is some artistry here, but it is not a standout in the history of cinema example of it, I don't think. It is pretty, but it's kind of boring. Yeah, I mean, again, I said this to you when I texted you that it was good. (laughs) It's not my thing at all. (laughs) I'm probably coming at it from a more generous perspective because I don't have a lot of foundation in this type of film i think also probably the plot feels a little bit more lived in and a little bit more surprising if you haven't watched a lot of these movies i could sort of predict literally every plot beat the moment a scene started in this film well the mom's job is to do this the neighbor's job is to do this the friend kid's job is to do this And they all do it. I think it's the problem you had with Stagecoach. Yeah, I'm a big Western fanatic. So for me, that was like, what the fuck is this garbage? (laughs) Yeah, everything sort of feels like the most basic version of what you would do in this kind of movie to me. Uh, Yeah, I think if you have not watched a bunch of cute kid has to do a tragedy thing to learn how to be an adult then like, yeah, I think that there's some fun stuff in here. 
I keep dismissively saying it's nature photography, but the scene where he's running through the forest with a bunch of deer is cute in a good way. In an extremely good way, it's cute. I just have seen enough movies with that where I was like, yeah, now he runs through the deer. He loves the deer now. Like, great, great. Okay, what's next? Oh, the mom's mad? Okay. It is very paint-by-numbers for this genre, but in being paint-by-numbers, it's very pretty (laughs) because they painted all the correct things. That's fair. I think that that's a fair assessment. I have experienced this genre on the page more than I have on film. Like, I've never seen Old Yeller, (laughs) but I've read Where the Red Fern Grows, (laughs) (laughs) which also is apparently a movie, but I haven't seen the movie. I mean, I do think that there's definitely some things in here that don't stand the screen test of time, even from the perspective of it being a pretty solid example of the kid loves a pet and then has to lose the pet and learns a lesson about life and death thing. The bear hunting scene is rough. Yeah. I would not show that to a kid. (laughs) I don't think I'd show that to an adult. Even though nothing dies in it, seeing dogs get flung around by a bear is fucking horrifying. Yeah, and knowing that that is actually a dog and a bear fighting. Like, they're play fighting, they're clearly trained dogs and trained bears, but there isn't, like, trick photography here. No! We have not composited this shot. That bear actually took a swipe at that dog. Or picked up that dog in its mouth and flung it. Yeah. And I don't know that there is a way in which that can happen, humane society notwithstanding, where the dog doesn't get hurt. Like, yeah, it's play fighting, but you still get bruised, you know? Even if you know that the humane society is on hand, that doesn't take away from the horror of it in any way. That was pretty rough, I thought. Yeah, that was really where I sort of started going like, oh, this is one of those 15-minute vignette movies. I don't think this movie was made to be cut into 15-minute chunks, but you could safely cut this into 15-minute chunks, and that is sort of the thing the industry finds about this movie. The point of this type of movie is TV syndication, that you show it over the course of a week, on weekday afternoons for, like, 10-year-old boys in cowboy hats. Or you show it for four hours on a Saturday on TNT because there's really obvious commercial break spots. Right. And that bear sequence, you start where they find the dead calf, you end where they're nursing the dog back to health, you cut to commercial for a cereal that's going to make every child in America hyper. (laughs) You're done. It isn't bad because of that, but it just felt so long to me because I then knew what it was. And I kept waiting, like, what's the swerve? What makes this the Oscar version of this thing? What makes it not just every single movie about a cute kid experiencing a loss for the first time? Nothing, because it's kind of the first big movie that does that, and that's what the Academy is awarding. It's the first movie that figures out how to kill a cute deer. (laughs) I mean, I think the thing that it is nominated for is the cinematography, really. Right. But I think that that is central to the genre in a weird way. Putting you in the middle of, ah, nature, ah, the frontier, and then going, but it's hard out here on the frontier, and sometimes you have to murder what you love. (laughs) Like, Old Yeller doesn't really have that very much. 
Old Yeller is, as a result, kind of a different genre than this sort of boy's adventure thing, where you're learning to be self-reliant and self-possessed against the backdrop of all these beautiful trees and nature's all around us, and look at this raccoon. This figures out how to be that. And I think it's the first film that's that. I mean, I think the 15-minute chunks, though, I think that actually lends to my argument that it is well-edited. Because it is, narratively, the beats are well-contained. You know, it's not the best years of our lives. (laughs) What I'm saying about the 15-minute chunks is the beats also repeat enough that if you started watching this movie at the hour and 30 minute mark, it takes you about 30 seconds to orient yourself and figure out everything that's going on. Like, you didn't actually need the first hour and 30 minutes of this. You didn't need any of the stuff with the bear. If you come into this movie without any of the shit with the bear, you're like, oh, that's fine. No important context was lost. If you just show up for the kid's friend dying and you've never seen the friend before, it has basically the exact same effect. <laughs> this It seems like this kid was his friend. And that's about as much context as you got from the earlier scene with the friend. Yes, that's true. It does suffer a little bit from book adaptation syndrome, where I'm sure that a lot of these things are better developed in the book. Maybe not. I mean, it's a kid's book, so who knows? But yeah, there's definitely the feeling that the friend who dies randomly or Oliver who we meet for 30 seconds and then he gets married and goes away, that there must be more to that in the book. Also with the three days that he's missing, that there has to be more than three minutes worth of material there, but that it was cut down for the movie. I have not read The Yearling, but I would say being an unintentional student of this genre, the three days thing is absolutely a bigger thing in the book. The other thing that is a bigger thing in the book is probably the friend kid, because it seems like they kind of hand-waved the friend kid because a lot of the friend kid plot content is delivered by adults about that kid in a way where you're like, oh, they couldn't cast somebody who could do all of that kid's role from the book. Right. Like maybe he is very clearly sick, but because the book is from the kid's perspective, the kid doesn't exactly get it, but you reading the book understand the things that he says about the kid make it clear that he's not just, it's not just that he jumped off of a roof and broke his leg, but there's more issues of chronic illness or something at play there. Yeah. There's also this thing with the friend kid where like, The mom very clearly does not think as highly of this other kid as he does, and I bet there's a lot of interior monologue stuff about how smart this friend kid is when he's actually an idiot that jumped off a building trying to fly. (laughs) It's that kind of thing. He seems very wise to a kid kind of thing. Right. In the way that, like, cool older kids or cool friends can when you're a child, where you're like, wow, they know everything. And then you get, like, a year older and you're like, they didn't know anything and were lying a lot. (laughs) yeah i definitely get the impression that that's the case one thing that stood out to me about this film was how differently children's movies are made now because they are made with the intention both of entertaining a child and giving the parents something to latch onto that the kids aren't even gonna get yeah that is not present in this at all it is absolutely made for max 11 year olds (laughs) Because there's a lot of stuff in here that is not developed in a way that I feel like it would be for contemporary audiences where they're trying to make, like, Up 
or something that has meaning both to the kids who just want to see a kid run around the jungle and to adults who understand the experience of this widower who never had children and they wanted to have children and what that does to his relationship with the child. Yeah, I I will disagree only insofar as this movie spends about three minutes on stuff for adults. And I think that the Academy was sort of amazed by that. I think the casting of Gregory Peck is kind of that. And the like one scene where the mom goes and visits the cemetery and is very sad about the legitimately extremely sad thing about her first three kids dying. But those are there for adults. Yes, you're right. In a modern context, there'd be like 25 minutes of coded language about Gregory Peck desperately trying to fuck and this kid getting in the way or something, you know? (laughs) That kind of shit. Or the emotional struggle of the mom in the context of having stillborn children or children who died when they were infants instead of her just seemingly mean all the time. Yeah. The reason is given, but it doesn't inform the rest of the performance or the rest of the script for there to be that performance. What I am saying is that thing in the modern context is there because studios figured out, oh right, parents are taking children to go see these films. The ones with money that are paying to go see a children's film are the adults. So it can't be too boring for them. And I think that that scene with the mom and the casting of Gregory Peck are sort of the first gestures toward that that balancing act of modern children's films. But yes, I do think that the equation is way, way, way unbalanced toward this movie is for the kids versus modern day children's movies. There is so little given in comparison to even a Trolls movie or something. (laughs) It is kind of wild. I do think that's what earns this its place as like afternoon TV for kids that have just gotten home from school. That is what this genre is. And then eventually TV starts making its own content for that. And so movies don't need to do that anymore. That is the niche this finds itself in. Because there is so little for adults, it is played in TV time slots exclusively for children where you don't even need the parents' input to go see this or anything, right? Because why would you? And the answer from a 1946 perspective is, I don't know, Gregory Peck's in it. Right. But from our perspective, it's like nothing. There is nothing for adults. Yeah. So should we rate this film? Yeah. Um. I'm... Uh, I'm going to give it a five. I'd meet you at a four, but I kind of want to say three. That That's fine. I think it's just a solidly made film. It's not for me. It doesn't teach me anything I didn't already know. I'll agree with you that Gregory Peck is miscast. It's interesting because you definitely see the beginnings of Atticus Finch in this performance, but he's just too young. He's too young, and it's also weird to play a guy that says, like, critters and varmints and farm wisdom. Yeah, he's too erudite. Yeah, like, it is weird to have that be the same performance he gives in To Kill a Mockingbird. (laughs) And it kind of is. He's a good enough actor that it isn't literally beat for beat or anything, but he's bringing that same energy, you know? Yeah, and he just doesn't have the gravitas yet to do it, and he's also just too classy. (laughs) Yes, and I don't think it's Jane Wyman's fault. You are right, in a modern film, she would have way more to sink her teeth into with the tragedy of her backstory, 
It is not her fault that her role becomes beep boop killing the deer beam charging beep boop (laughs) for the back half of this film. But it kind of does. So she's hard to watch. Cute kid is cute. It is sad when he is sad. He ain't Haley Joel Osment. No, he's not Haley Joel Osment. He is not. What was the the really great kid? Oh, uh, who then is an adult actor in the 50s shit. Jackie Cooper. Yeah. yeah. He's, he is he's, not Jackie Cooper. No. He's better, though, I would say, than... Who is that totally obnoxious kid who also becomes an adult actor? <laughs> uh, the one that's Puck in Midsummer. Yeah. Um, Mickey Rooney. He's better than Mickey Rooney. <laughs> mm, here's the thing. He's better than Mickey Rooney in Midsummer. I don't think he's better than Mickey Rooney in The Human Comedy, a terrible film where Mickey Rooney gives a strangely good performance. Yeah, he's a better child actor than Mickey Rooney was a child actor. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. Mickey Rooney becomes a really good actor. He just was not a good child actor. (laughs) Yeah. And neither of them are Jackie Cooper, who could break your heart in a film you hated. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I'm going to... I'm going to say don't watch this movie. I don't think there's any reason to watch it. No. And like, I could... Three, four, somewhere in there. It's... I would say it's a little below par, but I understand where Susan's coming from. Look, you can stick your kid in front of it if you need to, but don't watch it yourself. (laughs) Right. Actually, don't stick your kid in front of it because of the bear fight. I just can't with the bear fight. Yeah, if they're playing this, like maybe start him on the Wednesday where he meets the deer. If you're putting your kid in front of this. Instead of, like, starting the Monday afternoon where you're going to watch the bear fight. So what is the better movie to watch, David, since you're a connoisseur of the kid in the great frontier has to kill his pet genre? I don't know. I didn't like very many of them. The thing is, my childhood coincided with when we tried to do another wave of these, but they all were with a twist. Like, Homeward Bound is this, but it's only the animals. You just follow the animals and then they voice over. In terms of, like, it's about nature, it's about learning lessons in nature, but the ones learning the lesson are two dogs and a cat. There's a real sea change in kid makes friends with an animal movies in, like, the late 80s, early 90s. So I kind of just zoned out for 50 different movies that have the same plot as this. And I can't really tell you which one grabbed me because the answer is none of them did. I watched Star Trek. I became a (laughs) nerd rather than get attached to any of these movies. Air Bud? (laughs) I I mean, I guess they don't kill Air Bud, but you know. No. (laughs) Man, the direct-to-DVD ones get wild. When they kill Air Bud and Air Bud 4... That doesn't happen, right? No, I'm fairly certain it doesn't, but I only know the director of the first Air Bud movie and not the direct-to-DVD sequels, so I cannot say for certain. Don't watch this movie. It has pretty nature photography and not nothing else, but relatively little else. And whether that's a three or a five to you, I think is going to depend on... Your openness to this genre and your experience with this genre. It's not for me. Yeah. Next week, we've got an all-timer and one I imagine we've both watched before. I have never seen it. Holy shit. Okay. Yeah. I'm actually really excited. I almost watched it at Christmas this year, but I was like, well, we're going to see it pretty soon, even if it will be 
seasonally inappropriate. <laughs> but yeah, it's a wonderful life. Yeah. Which I'm super excited slash a little bit scared about because one of my best friends, Helena, just saw it for the first time, maybe not last year, but the year before, after being like, whatever, it's a wonderful life. What a cheesy movie that, you know, I'm definitely not going to like. And it wrecked her. <laughs> it is an emotional roller coaster and it works. It is one of the weirdest structured films that I've ever seen, but it fucking works. Like I like I don't know, we'll talk about it. Maybe maybe I I know some people who It's a Wonderful Life doesn't really operate for and its politics are much more questionable than I think it is popularly understood as. Mm. I think it's kind of like a lot of his films understood as being a little bit more lefty and new dealy than it actually is especially since capra was a republican and very anti-new deal and so was jimmy stewart <laughs> right. so that's going to be an interesting lens to watch that through but sometimes he accidentally it's like being accidentally left away <laughs> this movie kind of accidentally invents some left-wing stuff with some um troubling populist energy if you stare at it too hard some of the stuff is a bit weird but also it hates a big banker who's an asshole so that gets you some points yeah well great then i'm really looking forward to it and also we'll probably cry yes so tune in next week to find out if it's a wonderful life destroys me <laughs> And until then, this was a series of 15 minute vignettes that are played on afternoons to keep your kid shut up when he has gotten home from school. That's what this was. And there is a use to that. <laughs> there, there super is. There super duper is. Bye, everybody. Bye. Come spring again. We'll even go hunt no sleuth. Yes, boy. Good night, Pa. Good night, son.